7 is an auspicious integer, from a numerological perspective. It's the first real prime number, in my opinion. 2, 3, and 5 are all just regular numbers that are allowed in by virtue of being little guys, and you know I'm right on this. And it's got all the religious spice and spiritual texture that makes a number just really delicious to chew over. 7 feels to me like it's the first naughty number, you know? And not just for the seven deadly sins correlation. If I see six people hanging out, it could be a triple date or half a group of disciples, something of that nature. Seven people suggests conspiracy, something perverse and intimate. If you're talking business in a group of seven, I'm pretty sure that's enough evidence for a RICO case under US law. So, Subterraneans is now in its seventh season. What does that mean for the show? For six seasons, I've explored underground London, scrabbling for enlightenment in the dirt. This season, though, I haven't had to scrabble. I've been suffering from intense dreams recently, vivid visions of what's to come. For years, I've been looking for stories. This season, though, it seems like the stories are coming to me. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. The Seven Dials, near Covent Garden, is a well-known destination for tourists and travellers heading west from the city towards Soho. These days, the unique street design, seven streets converging on one central roundabout, with a series of alleys and yards connecting each of the radiating dials as you move further out, makes it an excellent space to wander around aimlessly, taking in the transition from the theatre district to Soho proper. It was designed in the late 17th century by Thomas Neal, a prominent architect, project manager, politician, and degenerate gambler, who would go on to hold the equivalent position to the modern postmaster general in the American colonies. He was an archetypal renaissance man, in that he did a lot of things quite poorly and was very racist. The Seven Dials were an experiment of sorts, a new neighbourhood on what had previously been open farmland, a place for him to explore the architectural side of his monetary policy, both personal and political. Neil wrote a lot in favour of a national land bank, the precursor to the modern Bank of England. Although not formally established until 1694, five years before Neil's fairly early death, the Bank of England is one of the most obvious enabling factors in the establishment of modern capitalism, and it served as a model for almost all other central banks. In greatly simplified terms, and you'll excuse me as a non-economist, the Bank of England works by lending money to the government and then issuing banknotes against this loan, which can then be lent again into other investments. It is a system of government debt being used to finance the country at either end, and it allowed for vast amounts of money to be invested in the industries that made Britain wealthy, which is to say the slave trade and the colonisation of half the world. Neil wasn't just interested in debt as a tool for empire building, though. 
He also carried, as a matter of course, a mountain of personal debt, having gambled away his fortune multiple times over the course of his life. The idea of debt as the crushing superego of invention was almost an article of faith for him, something he actively pursued and encouraged in his works. The Seven Dials were an experiment in debt, the normal debts of rent and mortgages, of course, but also an experiment in worship. There's a pillar growing in my neighborhood. It's a Corinthian-style white marble pillar. For those of you not up on the difference between your Doric and your Ionic pillars, think a Roman-style column with a grooved shaft, no sniggering, and a bunch of flowery ornamentation towards the tip. There's nothing on top of it, and the base extends untidily down into the ground beneath. I moved recently, and I'm a little higher up now, very off-brand, I know. And out my window, I can see the cracked paving slabs near the post box on the corner where it first started to rise. To begin with, it was just a bit of splintering in the pavement, barely noticeable. But over the next few weeks, the ground began to swell and distend, until one morning I woke to a cracking sound and looked out at the top of a pillar, standing a proud foot and a half out of the dirt, surrounded by broken out concrete. Nobody seems to know what to do with it. The Seven Dials Junction may now be more associated with high-end boutiques and the theatre district, but that wasn't always the case. For many years after its original design and construction in the early 1690s, Seven Dials was known as a particularly rough and bawdy part of the city, a matter only exacerbated by all seven of the buildings facing into it operating as pubs. The centre of the junction holds a pillar with six sundials on it, with the seventh being the pillar itself marking out the time as best the weather permits. The pillar was first installed in 1694, and although it was removed in 1773, that first 80 years of the Seven Dials heralded some of the rowdiest and most ecstatic times in history for that part of the West End. Gambling houses were endemic, not to mention gin shops, and both operated on a system of debt peonage designed to keep everyone circling nicely around the junction. There are some famous illustrations from this period, showing a procession of drunks and ne'er-do-wells snaking around the central pillar, in a sort of perverse recreation of the maypole dance. This wasn't just artistic license. Having seven pubs that all spill out into the street meant that the centre of the dials was a regular bacchanal, with music and free-flowing alcohol creating an atmosphere of street parties and public licentiousness that regularly culminated in feral, semi-pagan dance festivals around the central column. To take a trip around the Seven Dials became a cheeky euphemism for a drunken flight of fancy that went beyond the normal slightly messy night. 
People would report strange after-effects, time dilation, the discovery of rapturous truths and revelations about oneself and one's dance partners. Indeed, to read contemporary accounts suggests a near-religious euphoria gripping the centre of the junction, which apparently developed a sort of gravitational pull for people on nearby streets, swirling bodies into a great circular mosh pit at the eye of the crossroads. People would pass in and out of the dance, stopping to top up drinks, while the music spun itself into an ever-accelerating cacophony around them. A great spiral of arms and legs, rotating a circumambulation of inebriates, worshipping, worshipping. There's something about columns and circles that provokes strange behaviour in all animals. Ants are able to get themselves into death spirals if the pheromone trail is disrupted, milling themselves to corkscrew death of exhaustion. I've already mentioned mosh pits and maypoles, both forms of prayer, and of course there's the Muslim practice of the tawaf, circulating the most holy site in Islam seven times as one of the key pilgrimages of the faith. We are creatures of circles and dials, but there needs to be a focus, some centre for that energy, or it starts to rot. It was after the removal of the column that the reputation of the Seven Dials began to change. The later 1700s saw the area shift from a rowdy but largely good-natured party into a haunt for the criminal underclasses of the West End. Charles Dickens references it extensively in his work. He describes the neighbourhood as follows in Scenes and Characters No. 1 in Bell's Life in London, published 1835. The stranger who finds himself in the dials for the first time, and stands, Belzoni-like, at the entrance of seven obscure passages, uncertain which to take, will see enough around him to keep his curiosity and attention awake for no inconsiderable time. From the irregular square into which he is plunged, the streets and courts dart in all directions, until they are lost in the unwholesome vapour which hangs over the housetops and renders the dirty perspective uncertain and confined. And lounging in every corner, as if they came there to take a few gasps of such fresh air as has found its way so far, but is too much exhausted already to be enabled to force itself into the narrow alleys around, are groups of people whose appearance and dwellings would fill any mind but a regular Londoner's with astonishment. While there are plenty of neighbourhoods in London that exhibited a similar level of poverty, there was a certain desperate allure to the Seven Dials, which seemed to draw people down and into it, almost inescapably. The yards and alleys between each of the radiating streets swept outwards in a rough spiral, further emphasising the drain effect, to say nothing of the literal pools of effluent that were collected in the poorly sewaged gutters. People continued to circle the Seven Dials, much as they had prior to the removal of the column, but in a very different way to before. Instead of an endless rotating party, the place radiated a malignant energy, drawing in spite and violence completely out of proportion to other equally poor neighbourhoods nearby. It vibrated like a spinning top in the process of falling off a table, maintaining its centrifugal stability even as it plummeted towards Earth, a diamond-tipped drill of unfocused power and malevolence. 
and that's what the Seven Dials remained for almost 200 years. Bombsite.org, a website dedicated to mapping the Blitz, shows at least four direct hits to the dials, but that belies their intense effect. Spotters at the time noted that any ordnance dropped in the area of the Seven Dials always seemed to be pulled towards it somewhat, resulting in a halo effect of explosives, flattening the surrounding area and temporarily isolating it from the rest of the city. As with so much of London's occult architecture, the Blitz marks a clear breakpoint in its history. With the ley lines that empowered it broken and most of the souls which continued to power it dead or evacuated, the dials were reduced to a ghost neighbourhood, a series of warehouses and empty venues awaiting the return of exaltation. It evolved gradually through the 50s and 60s as the West End transformed towards the nightlife district we know it as today, the wheel of fate revolving one step further from the farmland it once was. The spinning top had lost its silent master. That wouldn't be the case for long. A new veneration was rearing up behind the mask of capital. The old ways would return with sharper teeth in the 1980s. pillar in my neighbourhood is getting pretty tall. Last week it was just about peeking into the first floor rooms next to the street, but it's now standing just above the street lamps, its sheer polished marble top catching the mid-morning sun and reflecting through my window. There have been posts on next door about the column, and it's been reported to the council of course. They don't have anyone available from enforcement to come and inspect it for another month. In the meantime, most are trying to ignore it. There's a primary school just down the way, and the kids tend to swing around it as they go past, but their parents rush them along, scolding them to pay it no mind. It looms out my window. And I swear, it emits a slight glow in the night. Perhaps it's just how the columns catch the moonlight. But I feel like it's looking at me. The central column of the Seven Dials was replaced in 1989, in celebration of its final revolution on the road to the end of history. The West End was abandoning its seedy nightlife district reputation and disnifying, converting the smoky jazz clubs and red light districts into boutiques and restaurants. It wasn't a quick process for most of the city, but in Seven Dials it was taking longer than usual. It sits just outside of the bounds of Soho, a tangled little oddity to the north of the newly converted Covent Garden. So it seemed the Seven Dials should logically follow shortly behind. Nonetheless, they couldn't get it moving. The area lacked the dynamism of the neighbourhoods to its immediate south and west, 
and despite several major redevelopment works, tenants were slow to adapt to the Dial's strange architecture, and business was slow. It wasn't until the new central sundial was installed in 1989 that things started to turn around. Opened by Beatrice of the Netherlands in June of that year, the current Doric column surrounded by six sundials, with the column itself once again forming the seventh, seemed to revitalise the area, heralding the start of the modern district. Seven Dials is now a model for a modern historic shopping zone, regularly cited by developers as the inspiration for their latest conversion project in an up-and-coming neighbourhood. It's retained the cobblestone streets and one of the pubs, added a food hall, brought in lots of upmarket clothing and jewellery shops. Seven Dials is now the centre of a spinning wheel of capital, whose spokes radiate out and pierce into the surrounding area, warping it to the touch. It'd be unrecognisable to Dickens. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. People don't dance around the dials anymore. We worship a different god now. Perhaps the pillars need us as much as we need them. Our worship is all confused and sideways. The maypole remains unvenerated, the whirligig on its side. We can barely bring ourselves to rotate a rosary. It's not us anymore. Something else is dancing. The same occult power that used to run on people now runs on the flow of capital just as Thomas Neal would have hoped. The fiscal death machine created in the acid bath of 80s neoliberalism now perambulates the entire city, a hunting monolith, foot following leaden foot to stamp out other neighbourhoods, to replicate itself. Every time a new area starts to come up, you see another Seven Dials project appear, a historic conurbation converted to boutiques Surrounded by a derelicting halo of people moving outwards, carving a new circular church for capitalism. Stadiums and shopping malls, spinning humans into gold around the loom of empty monuments. The psychic focuses of the city demand worship. They turn to it like flowers in the morning sun. If you love where you live, and you start to see pillars growing, its eye has turned to you. One has started to break through the floor of my building. The foundations are crumbling and my rent is going up. I saw another sprouting a few streets over. They're everywhere in this place that I adore. Encircling. Ensnaring. Worshipping.
next episode of Subterraneans. Holy Antenna, the location of psychic strength, and pirate radio in the East End. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. As always, Subterraneans is entirely written, recorded, and scored by me. So I need to ask my listeners to help with the promotion. If you know anyone who you think might enjoy Subterraneans podcast, please pass it on to them. I'd love to drag a few more souls underground. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app. You can also subscribe on Patreon, where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes info from £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran, Alex, Isaac, Andrew, and Sparrow. When you hear him coming, you better run. Better hold your name fast on your tongue. Better fear his wrath in all that you do. Better pray what befell me won't fall upon you. Thanks for listening.